This afternoon, I will be reading from Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Hi, church. It is generally true that we love stories especially good stories that captivate our attention and make us feel something deeper. The best stories illustrate a deeper felt reality through a fictitious story. A classic theme in stories that we love is the struggle between good and evil. You see it in old stories like King Arthur. Uh, You see it in new stories like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, whatever your fancy Uh, But what strikes a particular chord in most of us is when injustice is done against the protagonist in the story. Uh, Maybe they were wronged or tricked or persecuted undeservedly. Something deep in us cries out, that's wrong, that's unfair. And usually we're on the edge of our seats until the plot is reconciled. Today we gather on this Good Friday to remember and reflect upon the greatest injustice ever done in history. Jesus, the innocent sufferer, is condemned to death on a cross. God himself is wrongly condemned to death by a human court of accusers. The righteous judge is declared guilty, and the innocent lamb is sentenced to death. Yet Jesus' response when he was crucified is not one that we would necessarily expect. Amid gross injustice and gruesome affliction, Jesus offers up an intercessory prayer to his father in Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet his persecutors continue on in their wicked treatment of the son, and they cast lots for his garments. So I want to speak to three things that we see in this verse today on this Good Friday, uh, all of these pertaining to Jesus' first saying on the cross. Firstly, we see Christ's compassion. Secondly, we see Christ's intercession. And thirdly, we see Christ's example. This passage teaches us this Good Friday that Jesus innocently suffered and died at the hands of his enemies and yet interceded for their forgiveness, showing the extent of his compassion further revealing his priestly office and leaving an example to us and to his disciples. And my hope is today that you, church, would know and believe the rich forgiveness that God has shown us through Christ and would likewise gladly forgive those who wrong you. So first, Christ's compassion. So the Jewish leaders in that time uh, had long sought to kill Jesus. If you read through any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you constantly see this theme coming up and they plotted to kill him, and they plotted to kill them, and they tried to kill him, but he escaped. Um, It's really important to note, um, just a little side note, that the Jewish leaders could have never killed Jesus when they wanted to. Jesus had an appointed time that he uh, was ordained by the Father to die, and that time has now come, and Jesus is arrested. Uh, He's bound up, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin were the Jewish leaders of the time, and they start this really wicked trial, unjust secret trial in the night 
um, and they ask Jesus a ton of questions, and they try to find a reason to condemn him to death. So that's the first enemy Jesus has. Uh, when they kind of feel like they're not getting anywhere, they send him off to Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor over that region, and Pilate tries to find something to accuse him of. And when he can't find anything to accuse him of, he sends him off to Herod, uh, and then he comes back. So Herod's just this puppet king that's been set up over Israel, really to do Rome's bidding. One of the commentators says that he is surrounded by a triangle of enemies, the Jewish leaders, Pontius Pilate and Herod. All three of them do injustice upon him. They give him an unfair uh, trial, an unfair secret trial. They spat upon him. They carted him back and forth, probably in chains or ropes, and he is beaten and he is stripped. And ultimately, he is falsely condemned to death and a cross is laid on his back that he must carry for miles and miles and, and take it up to Golgotha and be crucified. Luke 24 emphasizes to us the vehement urgency in which Jesus's enemies wanted to put him to death. The text says that they were crying out, that they were urgent, that they were vehemently accusing him. They were shouting out. They were urgently demanding. They were scoffing and they were mocking him. Even as he cries out for their forgiveness, his killers are sitting by gambling for his clothes. A final act of disgrace and shame against the crucified Christ. If you can imagine that, just the degrading, uh, just, yeah, to degrade Jesus. He is hanging, bloodied, stripped, crucified, and they are gambling for his clothes. So what does Jesus mean when he says, forgive them? They know not what they do. In one sense, we know they did know what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. The Jewish leaders, like we said, had vehemently and urgently sought Jesus' death, and now they had it. But what's also true is, in a way, they had no idea that they were putting to death the Lord of life. They were so blinded by their sin, and some of them, particularly the Romans, were utterly ignorant, and yet... Sweet Jesus has compassion on ignorant evildoers. Jesus had seven sayings on the cross. And in your internal reasoning, what would you expect them to be? Father, save me. Stop them. Show them. I'm sure that none of us, if we had the power and dominion of Jesus, would be able to restrain ourselves in that moment from vindicating ourselves. Yet this verse we read today was his first saying on the cross. Father, forgive them. We should see the radical compassion of Christ for his enemies, and it should elicit in us faith leading to worship. We see this happen three times after Jesus's crucifixion and death. Three times faith leads to worship. Firstly, we see the thief on the cross. So there's one thief that hangs next to him who sees Jesus and hardens his heart. But there's another thief next to him that sees Jesus and believes. And he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he says, this day you will be with me in glory. And as Jesus uh, breathed his last and that thief breathed his last, he was with the risen Christ in glory. Then we see uh, the Roman centurion uh, who crucified him. It says, further as Jesus dies, a Roman centurion praises God saying, certainly this man was innocent. 
Though we're not totally sure if this was a profession of saving faith, at the least, even a pagan man who was able to discern in that moment that something heavenly had just occurred. Like the pagan men who threw Jonah overboard, he could not help but praise the true God because of what he witnessed. Again, we see faith leading to worship. And the third way we see it is the crowds. So the crowds that had been crying out for his crucifixion, crying out, crucify, crucify. We want Barabbas, the ones that have been mocking him on the cross. They leave the crucifixion mourning. It says that they leave beating their breast, which means they were sad. They realized something heavenly had happened. And all of a sudden, a murderous crowd is turned into a mourning crowd. Friends, I hope we see Christ's compassion for his enemies. Of the seven sayings uh, of Jesus on the cross, I don't know if we would expect this to be his first saying. Father, forgive them. I'm sure we would expect something like, stop them or show them or save me. But the first saying on the cross was, forgive them. And he said this to his enemies. And yet, how slow are we, those who are, who are once Christ's enemies, who have been made his children, who've been made his friends, and who've been made his people to come to him. How slow we are. The cross is meant to show us, church, the extent of which Christ was committed to the will of the Father to save his people from their sins and reconcile them back to himself. So friends, why in our struggles and our sins and our afflictions do we shy away from him? There is not another who understands, who forgives, and who helps us like the innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. So if you've been hiding from Jesus, I'm not sure your circumstances. I'm not sure what sin you've been struggling with or what afflictions or suffering or wrongdoing you have endured. But I would just encourage you not to hide any longer, but to look upon the crucified Christ this Good Friday and come to him. He understands um, the prayer of forgiveness to his father is meant to rouse in us faith and confidence that our hearts would cry and would be like the old hymn. I love this hymn. It says, I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask him, he will deliver and make of my troubles quickly an end. The compassion of our Savior is meant to strengthen our faith and likewise uh, that we are to worship him in repentance and obedience. This is our spiritual act of worship. But it's not only significant that Jesus offered up a prayer for his enemies of forgiveness, but it is also significant that his prayer was a prayer of intercession. So Jesus's earthly ministry was not the end of his work, but was further revealing his eternal office as our great high priest. Our greatest problem, we know this from Genesis 3, man's greatest problem is sin. So Adam and Eve, they disobeyed uh, God in the garden by eating of the tree, and two things happened. One, the relationship between God and man was severed. So man went from communion and fellowship and peace with God to wrath and condemnation because of their sin. And the second thing that happened is ourselves, inwardly, we are corrupted by sin. And then all of creation is itself corrupted and cursed as well. So a primary question that we see in the Old Testament is this. How can imperfect sinful people have their sins remitted and be finally reconciled back to God. So we see plenty of examples of imperfect intercessions 
offered for God's people uh, and for people in general in the Old Testament. The first time you see it is, or one of the first times you see it, uh, is with Abraham. So God sees the wickedness of Sodom, and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And this really burdens Abraham. So he goes to God and he says, God, if you can find this many people that are righteous in Sodom, will you not destroy it? And God's like, okay. He's like, well, actually, let me bring the number down. And he brings the number down all the way, three, two, one. He's like, for one righteous person, would you not destroy Sodom? But we know that God ultimately does destroy Sodom because of their wickedness, though he spares uh, Lot and his family. We also see uh, an example of an imperfect intercession uh, with Moses. So God brings his people and delivers them out of Egypt miraculously. And Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God. And the people start to panic a little bit. Um, They panic so much that they go to Aaron and they're like, what do we do? And Aaron's like, okay, what you need to do is everybody take off your rings and your earrings and all your stuff and throw them into the fire. And we're going to make this golden calf. So they do, they make this golden calf and uh, it distresses Moses very much. And it distresses God very much, so much so that he is very angry and wants to wipe Israel out, and Moses intercedes for them. Um, We know that God does end up severely punishing Israel for what they did, but he does not destroy them. And then obviously, the one that we know very well is the priest's sacrifice. Year after year, interceding for the sins of the people through all types of sacrifices uh, that they must do and do perfectly um, to have their sins remitted and put on another But all of these intercessions are shadows of Christ's perfect and full intercession. Acts chapter 2 shows us that unlike the incomplete and insufficient intercessions of the patriarchs and the priests, Christ's intercession for his people is complete. It is continual and it is final. His high priestly office is one that he holds forever. As Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, him, to God through him, Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and fills the apostles and those there. And then a crowd gathers, um, likely of Jewish people, and likely some of those people who gathered that day were some of the same people who witnessed the crucifixion and were beating their breast, mourning at Jesus's crucifixion. Jesus, um, or sorry, Peter explains to the crowd the nature of who Jesus was. He says, he was the Lord and he is your savior. And then he rebukes the crowd and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Um, So just because they were innocent, their guilt was not remitted, or sorry, not innocent. Even though they may have been ignorant to what they were doing. Their guilt remained. Um, and what was their response? Uh, it's very interesting. The first thing they say is they call them brothers. So they call Peter. They say, they say brothers, what should we do? What, what a big change from the ones who were crying out against the Lord Jesus. And now they are calling the apostles brothers. And they ask, what, what must we do in response to all these things? And what would you expect Peter's response to be based on what we know of the nature of sin and our need for intercession? Maybe make a sacrifice, maybe do penance and do good works for what you have done. No, he tells them to repent and be baptized as a sign of faith in Jesus. And 3,000 people that day repented and believed in Christ. 
So unlike the insufficient intercessions of the Old Testament, Jesus' intercession is complete and it is final for us. He is able to change murderous hearts to faithful worshipers. J.C. Ryle says this concerning the crucifixion. He says, as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. So as Jesus lifted up this intercessory prayer for the temporal act of his unjustly killing, he is revealing to the crowds and to us that he intercedes for the sins of his people to his father forever. So friends, the compassion of Jesus at the cross tells us why we can come to him. But his intercession explains to us why we can come to him. Many of you are familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, So it was a story written by John Bunyan. Uh, It's supposed to be an allegory to the Christian life. And uh, he was a a Puritan. And the main character of the story, his name is Christian. And he starts on this path headed to the celestial city. But as he walks on the path, he realizes he has this heavy burden on his back. And for the first part of the story, this, this burden, it's just like this sore on his back. It's, he desperately wants to have it removed. But then we get to one point of the story where he's going along the path and he ascends this little hill and at the top of the hill is this cross. And when he beholds the cross, uh, all of his bonds begin to break. And for the first time in his life, his burden falls off of his back and goes rolling down the hill. And this is what Christian said. He had given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. So the cross changes the way that we look at our forgiveness. No longer is it something that we are due, but it's something that is given to us as a gift. And likewise, our repentance and our obedience, which are our spiritual acts of worship to God, are no longer a burden to us, but they're a joy and a delight because now we have peace with God. Jesus endured God's judgment that we may delight in God's mercy. So for the Christian today, since our great high priest intercedes for us forever, we can go to God with confidence, we can go to him with joy, and we can go to him in peace. Let the crucifixion and the resurrection inform our obedience. And my question for you is, 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 do your spiritual disciplines feel like a burden to you? Do you feel like the Lord God is standing over you, looking over your shoulder or keeping tally marks? Um, and, and when you do your spiritual disciplines, when you walk with God with obedience or read his word or offer up prayers, uh, do you feel like you're having to muster up your own righteousness? I pray that we would look to Jesus as our great high priest and know that we now have peace with God. We have a righteousness that has been interceded to us through the forgiveness of Christ, through his death and resurrection. So if you ever do feel like that, and I often feel like that, I'm probably public enemy number one in this room. um, I pray that we would pray and go to God and ask him to remind us of uh, his disposition towards us, which is compassion and mercy for his people through what Christ has suffered. I want to also speak for the non-believer in this room. J.C. Ryle points out that Jesus was crucified between two sinners. There's two responses between these two sinners, and there are two outcomes to these men's eternal destiny. He says, Christ is indeed 
most gracious, but the day of grace must come to an end at last. In Christ, you find both mercy and you find judgment. But today is the day of salvation for you, friend. Christ is compassionate and gracious and willing to forgive your sins. His death and resurrection have paid for your sins. And if you would but confess and believe these things, he would merit to you his own righteousness. But the offer for mercy for ignorant sinners is not an offer that remains forever. Jesus himself says that he is coming soon, bringing his recompense to repay each one of us for what we have done. And at the crucifixion, it was Jesus, the savior of the world, who was crucified and put to shame while his enemies looked upon, excuse me, while his enemies looked upon him and mocked him. But when he returns, it will be him who puts his enemies to death and puts them to open shame. All those who have not put their faith in him are liable to his judgment because we have sinned against him. And he will justly pour out his wrath on all men and in eternal conscious hell. But friend, today know that he died for your sins, that you might be forgiven. Though his wrath and judgment are great, his compassion for sinners is demonstrated in the fact that he took our place and died the death we deserve. So put your faith and trust in him. And on the day of God's judgment, you will be hidden under the blood of Christ and will be forever reconciled to God as his people. So now that we've seen the compassion of Jesus on the cross, and we know that though he was innocent, he interceded for our sins and interceded for our forgiveness, us who were his enemies and those who are his enemies. Um, and we know that he intercedes for the sins of his people forever. We must now look at the example that Christ has given us that we would follow in it. So not long after Jesus was crucified, um, the Holy Spirit came, he was resurrected and he ascended. Uh, we see one of the first martyrs who gave their life for the cause of the gospel, we see Stephen, um, who, like Jesus, stood before a council of Jewish leaders who were accusing him, and he unfolds the mysteries of God to them. Um, and he also holds them accountable. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. You resist, always resist the Holy Spirit. So again, we see that theme that though they are ignorant, they are still accountable. Their guilt is not remitted. Um, but in this moment, he shares the gospel with them. And as the stone started to fly, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. So we see through the life of Stephen, the testimony of Christ in the life of Stephen, that the way that Christ forgave his enemies uh, is an example for us to follow. So my question is, what elicits this type of compassion in God's people? Romans 5 tells us that the world will scarcely die for someone who is good and righteous, but God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So have you been wronged lately, friend? How did you respond and how were you tempted to respond? Did you pull away in that situation? Uh, maybe you attacked back, repaying evil for evil, evil. Or maybe you didn't lash out, but instead you kept the anger inside, harboring bitterness. It may be true that you were really wronged. But what did your reaction demonstrate about your understanding of Christ's compassion for his enemies at the cross? And I would agree with you that Christians are not to endure any and every injustice done to them without question or protest. I understand that this is nuanced um, and actually 
Paul gives us a great example of this in Acts when he, a Roman citizen, is taken by Romans. He's thrown in jail and beaten. The Romans find out that he's a Roman citizen. They get really afraid because they're not supposed to do that to Roman citizens. And they try to let him go quietly. And his response is, no, you're not letting me go quietly. You are going to publicly release me and publicly apologize to me because of what you've done to me, a Roman citizen. So yeah, it, it was an injustice done to him and he didn't just endure it without question or protest. But this is the same exact Paul who endured shipwrecks and beatings and insults and desertion and betrayal and imprisonment, all that the gospel might come to the Gentiles. Christians are unlike any other people that walk the face of the earth. We do not live by the law that we give an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but we have compassion and mercy upon our enemies and we forgive those who wrong us and we pray for those who persecute us. God's people follow in the same way of their savior, showing otherworldly compassion on those who hate them because they know that this world is not their home. Just to give a last illustration, this is the type of uh, radical compassion we see in the life of the missionary John G. Payton. Uh, John G. Payton was a Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides. The New Hebrides uh, are modern-day Vanuatu, which are some oceanic islands off the coast of Australia. And the people of the New Hebrides were known to be utter savages in the truest sense of the word. Um, and they were known for cannibalism. Um, so one of the first missionaries named John Williams, who actually went to the New Hebrides, he landed on the beach and was very quickly killed and eaten. And his family and friends had to beg for his bones back in a bag. Um, and then pretty quickly after that, there was uh, a missionary couple that came, sweet missionary couple with kids from Canada. They came and they were likewise killed by the savages of the New Hebrides. And then his brother heard about what had happened to his brother and his sister-in-law. And he went to the New Hebrides to bring the gospel there. And he was likewise killed. So many missionaries gave their life to bring the gospel to the New Hebrides. And uh, there's a testimony in John G. Payton's biography of one of uh, these people who had come to Christ. And he says, um, we used to love and rejoice when we killed one of the missionaries because we hated them. And we hated their Jehovah God, likewise. We, we hated them. And anytime we'd kill one, we'd have a big, a big party and we'd rejoice. But he's like, one or two days would pass and we'd look out in the harbor and there would be another ship, another ship of missionaries who had come to preach the gospel to them, though they had been killed. This is the type of radical compassion that Christ's disciples are to have for their enemies. Christ stood in the gap for his enemies and forgave them because he had his eyes fixed on eternity. He knew that his unjust affliction had greater implications than his temporal suffering. It's the same for us. This is how we, God's people, should show compassion towards our enemies and towards a sinful world. We endure wrongdoing and show compassion to our enemies for a higher purpose. Uh, there's a... Um, there's kind of an attitude that has become, begun to spring up in American uh, culture and specifically in American Christianity uh, recently because our culture has become so pol uh, polarized that we need to be militant against the culture or we need to withdraw from the culture. Um, 
We need to rise up, take the ground back, or we need to recluse away from the culture. But Christ's own crucifixion teaches us two things concerning wrongful suffering. One, we are promised suffering in this life. Jesus says that no servant is greater than their master. So if this is the type of suffering that Jesus endured, imagine the type of suffering that we are also called to endure. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And the second thing that we know uh, about the crucifixion, the crucifixion is that the scales of justice are in God's hands. He will always do what is right and good for his people. So my question for you is, uh, when you have been wronged in the past, or even now when you have been wrong, what is your heart response? Usually your heart response is going to tell you what you uh, think about the gospel and what you think about Christ. So is your response uh, retribution? Uh, to repay evil for evil, evil for evil. Or maybe your response when wrong is done to you is to fear. Um, Maybe you cower or maybe you withdraw yourself from the situation. Or maybe you don't do either, but you just are bitter about it. You just hold it down in your heart, which I tend to do. Um, But man, for God's people, in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection, our response should be that. One, as Jesus showed us, of compassion for our enemies but also one of patience and perseverance because we trust God. We trust that he always does what's right. The the 12th chapter of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He, He did not despise the shame, or he did despise the shame because he knew what was waiting on the other side of the crucifixion was his resurrection. So, Friends, is there someone in your life that you have not forgiven? Is there someone difficult in your life that you have to deal with on a daily basis? Have you been unjustly wrong? I pray that we would all look to and follow the example of Christ, who though he was innocent, suffered and forgave his enemies. So my dear friends, on this Good Friday, I pray that we see that Christ has shown compassion to us, us who were once his enemies, by innocently dying as an atoning sacrifice. I pray as we close and prepare for Easter Sunday that we would believe in and worship our crucified and arisen Christ, our kind and compassionate friend, and that his example would compel us to forgive and love our enemies. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, you have shown such great compassion for us at the cross. Jesus, even though you were innocent, you died for our sake and you forgave us our sins. And Lord, you intercede for our sins and you make us your children. Lord, I pray in light of this, Lord, this week that we would be people seasoned with salt. Lord, bringing the light of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. And Lord, that our hearts would be stirred with compassion. And Lord, that you would help us forsake bitterness and fear and anger and that we would be your people, Um, Lord, a people that follow after your example. We're so thankful for the cross, and we're thankful that our, our greatest enemy, sin and death, have been ultimately and finally destroyed through your resurrection, and we look forward to celebrating that this Sunday. We pray these things in your name. Amen.